From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. We're kicking off the holiday season with some gratitude, some warmth, and appreciation of community. Thanksgiving is a day when gathering around a table to share a meal with family and friends is a treasured and celebratory act. It's also a time when poverty, hunger, and inequality are thrown into stark relief. Well, Bill Bowling has worked on these very issues since he established the Atlanta Food Bank back in 1979. His life and his work are a subject of our long-form conversation today. Bill grew up outside of Charlotte, North Carolina, and joined the Air Force right out of high school. I asked him how he joined up at just 17. Well, my mother had to sign. I don't know if she's wanting me to leave leave home early, but uh, I don't think I'd sign for my children. Anyway, it was a tradition in our family. I had an uncle that was um, career Air Force and other people in the family, so I joined right out of high school. Good move for me. I needed uh, to mature, grow up a little bit, wasn't ready for college. They actually, I think, just passed me out of high school and said, it's time for you to leave. <laughs> but I did grow up and do very well in school and graduate school later on. Did you have an idea then what you wanted to do with your life? I did not. Um, you know, that really in my late 20s is when I figured that out. Experimented, did a lot of things. I, four years in the Air Force, I, you know, I figured after two that was enough experience, but I had two more to serve and I... Served in Vietnam and Southeast Asia, and, uh, you know, those are experiences that stay with you all your life, but it also put things in perspective. And I came back, went to college, first one in my family, um, to start college on the GI Bill. And I didn't know what I wanted to do. I, I studied business, hmm. um, business administration, got a degree, decided to stay in school, <laughs> and uh, got a a teaching degree to teach business, um, and then finished that and uh, was live, living in western North Carolina up in Boone where I went to school, and you never want to leave that part of the country, but eventually you got to get a job. I came to Georgia for graduate school studying psychology uh, and counseling, uh, got ordained, and I really thought at that point that, uh, you know, that would lead me into ministry and pastoral counseling. Um, you know, another big development for us is I met my wife-to-be. I was in graduate school. She was undergraduate. Uh, and when I graduated and we moved to Atlanta, we decided to start a community and live in community and to live in an interfaith community. This is 1975. Not a lot of that going on at that time. Not a lot going on and not a lot going on in Atlanta. We bought a house uh uh, for your viewers, if you know where Piedmont Park is, mm-hmm. uh, your listeners, um, we bought a house on Myrtle Street for $30,000, and guy hugged my neck for taking his <laughs> off his hands, financed it himself. We bought the house next door, so we had two big houses. And, you know, we, had a, we did have people from different faith traditions. We worshiped together and taught meditation classes, and uh, we started some businesses out of there, had a, a bakery. Uh, book business, a restaurant right up the street. But I began um, volunteering at St. Luke's Episcopal Church, you know, soon after we came to town. And, um, you know, that wasn't a career move. That was I want to help feed people. And I was a veteran, and there were a lot of Vietnam veterans on the street. So that was my motivation. Mm. How do I help my fellow veterans? (laughs) You know, Virginia, I still remember... I got there, 
Yeah, they'd been open for a few months. It had just gotten started. The only program in town was run by women of the church. Um, and I got assigned to make soup. And uh, I loved it. I thought, wow, this is it. After three college degrees and being a veteran, I even called my mother up, who's, you know, very worried by this time. <laughs> I would imagine. <laughs> Who are you living with? You don't have a job. I say, Mom, I found out what God wanted me to do, make soup. <laughs> uh, that did not uh, did not relieve her, her fears about what was going to happen to her son. But, you know, that really captured me, that along with being the the leader of this spiritual community. Um, and I had grown up in a small town, 800 people, not very diverse. I like to say I met a Catholic in high school and he moved down from New Jersey. You know, <laughs> I mean, there was really, but I knew early on in life that I wanted a bigger world and uh, wanted more diversity in my life. And the Air Force and, and being in Southeast Asia certainly provided that. So, Living in community was a way to live out our values of what we believed, that uh, different faith groups could live together, and that we could in turn serve the community. So we had homeless and mentally ill people living with us, and we had Christians and Jews and Muslims back in the 70s. Um, And it was a rough area of town, and uh, St. Luke's provided me a place to start working. And again, I thought I would be a counselor, minister pastoral counselor. I even ran the soup kitchen in the morning and would see clients in the afternoon, you know, thinking I need to practice my Mm -hmm. craft. But soon it became clear that there were so many people coming that we had to feed in shifts, you know, about 75 people. And there it became a logistics operation of getting people in, get them served, fill their pockets up with food and out another 75. And you realize that the work really was not the soup or the food. The work was to be with people, to be a good listener. And I really understood, and this is would lead me to how I thought about the food bank, I really understood that food was the tool, but the work was around transformation. Mm-hmm. It's really around hearing people's story, treating them with dignity, you know, finding out what their backstory was, you know, particularly veterans. Um and then as we thought, how do, we, how do we feed more people? You know, I spent a whole year going out talking to congregations and telling them that I had plenty of food. Uh, all they had to do was open their doors. You know, living in a community where we're studying all the great scriptures of the world, you know, I could make you feel guilty whether you're a Muslim or Jew or a Christian. <laughs> it's like, you know, if you're a person of faith, it's pretty clear in your scripture uh, what God calls you to do, but I'm uh, making a little fun here. But we had uh, over 20, I think 23, 24 congregations after a year who said, we will open our doors and we'll start a community kitchen like St. Luke's. Um, the problem is I didn't have any food or a truck or a warehouse. I just told them I did. You know, you got to kind of go out and make the deal. <laughs> you said, there comes that business degree <laughs> yeah, right. goes into action. Yeah, I better go out and find some food. <laughs> Uh, I'd been very successful in my own program. Um, But that was a real wake-up call because the idea of food banking had not been invented yet. Uh, This is what, 78, 79? 78, 78. And, you know, there were a few of us, maybe a half a dozen of us around the country, didn't know each other, had similar ideas, 
most people were coming to the table because they were focused on waste, not wanting to throw food away. Mm -hmm. I was coming at it, food as a tool for ministry. Mm -hmm. But in either case, we came together in 1979, created an organization called Second Harvest, now today known as Feeding America. So this that's a nationwide organization it is. now. And we have over 200 food banks in the country. You know, I kind of had the franchise for the southeast, right? So I used I used that um that network, that church network, particularly the Episcopal Church and helped start food banks in Raleigh and Charlotte and Winston-Salem and Greenville and you know, from North Carolina down to Florida. Um we created eight food banks in Georgia. Very important when um, we think about that in that if you want to get legislation passed in Georgia, you've got to come from somewhere else besides Atlanta. Right? So having a network of eight food banks and over 2,600 congregations and nonprofit groups. We deliver food in every county in the state. I think probably the only nonprofit. So building that network was very important. One, because food came from all over the state. Mm-hmm. You know, and I imagine church-based couldn't, didn't hurt either. Well, we had a natural network. And then the real secret of food banking was to decentralize the distribution. There wasn't one place everybody had to come to. That you would get food close to where people lived in a trusting environment, a congregation, a safe place, a place that you're going to be treated with dignity. That somebody's really going to listen to your story. Because most of the time, you know, we survey now every other year. We do a national survey of those we serve. Over half the people come in to get food at a local congregation. And the Atlanta Food Bank has over 650 organizations we serve, 29 counties. Over half of those people have a job or two jobs or three jobs. So it becomes an issue one of changing that narrative that they're not all lazy people. The other ones are elderly or people with children or people with disabilities, right? So changing that narrative about who the hungry are, and I know we'll get into yeah, what, what are the costs. Uh, most people are paying too much for rent, and if you're paying over a third of your income for rent, oftentimes there's not money left for food. Bill, you've become deeply involved with not just poverty and hunger, but housing issues, uh, issues of education and health care and well-being. What is the link or how did you jump from there to dealing with hunger to all of those big, big, thorny social issues? I think if you work in it every day, Virginia, you realize that there's a relationship. There's a relationship between uh, wages and what people are making. We talked earlier, wages have not followed the cost of living over the last 20 years. But if you want to talk about wages, then that's an issue of education, getting people educated for the jobs that exist. But if we want to talk about education, you have to have a good, secure home life, good nutrition. You need to have the supplies. We create a program at the food bank called Kids in Need with school supplies. Uh, Why should teachers have to pay for that? Mm. And, you know, they're having to do drives for that. So you find that I know when we created um, the Task Force for the Homeless, So I had worked with the homeless, still work with them today, but we had been a central program at St. Luke's. And by 1981, this is six years into my ministry, we had people dying on the street. And we had an emergency meeting down at Central Presbyterian Church and said, we have to do something. And the idea there was to bring business, 
government, the faith community, and the nonprofit community, those four entities, to gather around the table and talk about roles. So the task force for the home was started, and it was based at the food bank its first three years, almost four years. Uh, and then it spun out onto its own. We created in 1988 the Housing Forum, Affordable Housing Forum. Again, you might say, well, why are you doing housing at a food bank? Well, one is we had a great place to meet. Anybody coming for food, by definition, is paying too much for rent. You're, you're, when, if you when, can't afford food to put on the table, it's well, because you're paying too much for something else? Usually because wages are not covering everything. So you've got to cover your rent, your children, your child care, keep, you know, transportation. So when things don't add up, food is the thing you usually go down and get some help with. And that's why that sector grew so much. You know, food's a pretty straight-up deal. If right. you can't sell it, you can donate it to me. We actually changed tax law to get a break, cost plus half the profit you would have made. So there was incentive with tax laws. We changed liability laws in Georgia and across the country. We created logistics systems so it would work for the donor. Bill Bowling, founder of the Atlanta Food Bank, and he served as its executive director until 2015. Georgia Trend Magazine awarded Bill the Georgian of the Year Award back in 2012. We will be back with more of our conversation with Bill Bowling after the break. This is On Second Thought. This is On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. You're listening to my conversation with Bill Bowling, a pillar in Georgia's nonprofit work since the 1970s. He's moved far beyond that in his career. During his tenure at the Food Bank, the organization served more than 750,000 people each day in Atlanta and North Georgia. And the Georgia Food Bank Network extended that work all across the state. Bill has pretty much devoted his life to tackling issues of poverty and hunger. Now back to my conversation with Bill Bowling. And you're talking about how things were and what it's developed into. Hunger looks differently than, or how does hunger look differently than it did in 1979 when you started? Well, I think the profile has certainly changed. And one of the big changes, and we all experienced this, was the recession in 2008, 2007. 2008, 2009, a lot of the poverty moved to the suburbs. You always think of poverty in the inner city. Right, that's the and narrative. you have a certain narrative and certain image of who those folks are. Uh, that moved to the suburbs because people were so overextended. Uh, and when the recession came, people lost their homes, they lost their jobs. Uh, so you had folks out in North Fulton, Barbara Tuffy out at North Fulton Church. She has people driving up in Lexus, mm. hungry. Right, or people living in their cars. So it was a very dramatic time of of who the hungry are, uh, of what their situation is, and the kind of services that we provide people. It's good, you know, to provide when you're hungry to provide a meal. But at the end of the day, you really want to look at the systemic issue. As I like to say, you have to kind of go up the river and say, who's throwing them in, right, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. try to work. So at the Atlanta Community Food Bank, from the beginning— our mission was to engage, 
educate, and empower the community to fight hunger. It wasn't about warehouses and trucks. And, you know, today the food bank d- d- distributed almost 70 million pounds of food. Right, that's year. what It's uh, a big the, business. The scale is huge. I saw, yeah. you know, pictures of forklifts and, you know, moving huge masses of food. But I want to get back to that community idea. We, I think, have this notion in America that we move away from poverty, right? You know, that you move on up, you get into the next neighborhood, you, you get away from where poverty lives. There's this notion of escape. And studies have shown that people who are in poverty do better living in mixed neighborhoods. So there's mixed income rather than all being let's say, um, ghettoized, to use the old term, in one place. But people who have money don't necessarily want that. I mean, we may, in theory, want to help other people who have less than we do, but I think it's frightening. Poverty is frightening for people. Well, it is, and we live in a time where we fear the other, anybody different than ourselves. I moderated the Decatur Housing Summit on Saturday, eight hours and we had over 100 people, probably 150 people of Decaturites talking about affordable housing. Mm-hmm. It was the most expensive city in the, in the state, Decatur. But they're still working on it. And we're still looking at creative ways, even in Decatur. But we, as we look around the state, this is not just an Atlanta issue. It's true in Macon or Columbus or Valdosta. And Virginia it really gets back to that idea of looking at things in a more holistic way. You know, costs have gone up, but wages have not gone up. Mm-hmm. So the cost of housing has gone up pretty dramatically over the last 20, 20 years. Wages have not. When you think, do we want to live in mixed-income housing? Well, we don't mind that those folks wait on us in the hospitality world. We don't mind that they take care of our parents and grandparents. We don't mind that they work retail. Those are the three big industries. Yet we say, well, we don't want to live with you, but we want you in our home taking care of things. What? really doesn't make sense. We, and that's, well, we don't mind the people that we know living, but we don't want the ones that we don't know. And that really is a central theme right now, and is be fearful of the other, of people that we don't know or look different or may have a different um, faith tradition. You know, most of us follow the one we're born in. So we look for opportunities at the food bank and at other organizations to how do we bring people together. So let me, I'll just tell you a story. Very early on at the food bank, I decided to do a hunger walk. Well, this was before any walks. Nobody was doing walks. They're every weekend now. So I remember having a meeting at St. Luke's and had, uh, I don't know, 25 people there and let's do a walk. We'll do it on a Saturday at Piedmont Park. Hundreds of people showed up. Mm. I didn't have a permit. I didn't have security. I didn't even have a route. We just started walking up Charles Allen because I lived in the neighborhood. And I thought, well, this is a good idea. But the vision was creating a place and time. And Hunger Walk's been going for 35 years. And we'll get 15, 18, 20,000 people out there. And you will have thousands of people that organize through the Jewish Federation. We have thousands of Muslims from different uh, you know, congregations around the metro area, all the different religious uh, Christian, you know, the Presbyterians, Episcopalians, and uh, Lutherans and Catholics, all the different groups. And we raise the money and give it back out to those groups. Sixty percent of the money goes back out. So the idea of engaging the community, that's one way to do that. 
of educating community, we use over 24,000 volunteers at the food bank. That's well, staggering across the state. No, that's just in the Atlanta area. I mean, you could triple that across the state. We all use volunteers. But the key was it wasn't an add-on for us. If volunteers didn't show up, the, vo- the work didn't get done. So when you come to the food bank or, you know, Feeding the Valley Food Bank in Columbus or the Middle Georgia Food Bank in Macon or the Savannah Second Harvest Food Bank, they use volunteers and you're doing real work, meaningful work, measurable work. You can You can measure the impact. That really makes a difference because those people then become part of your marketing team. They're going to go out and tell the story. So how you design an organization to engage the community, having engaged them, what do they learn from it, and then trying to move people to action, the action they choose. They may become advocates. They may become regular volunteers. They may go out and start their own program. But that engaging, educating, and empowering you know, we could say that around any organization in the state, that it's community-centered. We're engaging the community to do the work. And people really do kind of catch that vision and get more involved. But not all organizations that want to do that kind of work, that engagement, that empowerment, it doesn't always work for them. Why do you think it works for your organization? I mean, is that modeled by your behavior? You became that evangelizer on some level. Is that how it happened? Well, yes and no. I, I I think it's always dangerous to you know to hold up a Bill Bowling and say they're different than anybody else. Another story is we're trying to create the food bank. We're trying to figure out a name, and I insisted we had to have community. Mm-hmm. And everybody said, "Well, that's a long word, Bill. It's got a lot of letters <laughs> in it. You know, we're not going to say community every time. You know. <laughs> well, I'm sorry. We can leave out food bank. We're got to leave community in." <laughs> Because that was central to the work, right? And, you know, the people that we're feeding today, uh, a lot of folks are working and still coming up short. Like the working poor. The working poor. And when we look at what do we have a surplus of, we don't have a surplus of housing or health care. We don't have a surplus of doctors to see. You know, I mean, all the things that we need, what we have a surplus of is food. Mm. Over 30% of what we grow in package is unmarketable. And most of that's still in the ground. I mean, we've got programs now that we've got trucks and refrigerators on farms down in middle South Georgia pulling it in. So it's not just distributing food. It's helping people eat the right food because it's not a matter of just responding to hunger, you think, we want better educational outcomes. Well, we can argue about charter schools or core curriculum or any number of things, but we can't argue that if you don't eat, you don't learn. Or if you eat sugar in the morning, you know, you put your head down about 10 a.m. Or that diabetes is the number one issue (laughs) with children. And a lot of that, almost 20% of it is coming from eating sugar as, as a kid. So if you want better educational outcomes, one of the things we can do is feed our children and that they get to eat at night, they get to eat on weekends, they get to eat in the summer. If you want better health outcomes, right, and we all want that because we want our insurance rates to go down, we want people to be healthier, the health care system seems out of control, a lot of it can be uh, affected or controlled by what we have access to. Uh, and then training people how to cook and eat. 
as you said, there is a lot of food that is manufactured that is not used. What we have now in places like Atlanta, Columbus, um, Macon, Savannah, housing markets have changed dramatically. And a lot of people in traditional neighborhoods, traditionally African-American or poorer neighborhoods, have been squeezed out by those rents. It's not as if people have housing despair, or is it? How do you how do you change that model from the donating food to donating housing or getting more affordable housing? Well, that's more complicated, isn't it? You know, food's a pretty straight-up deal. If right. you can't sell it, you can donate it to me. We actually change tax law to get a break. Cost plus half the profit you would have made. So there was incentive with tax laws. We change liability laws in Georgia and across the country. We created logistic systems so it would work for the donor. You know, I remember when I first went to a grocery store chain for folks who might have grown up in the metro area, the big grocery store was a big star back then, owned by a family, the Alterman family. So I know when I approach them, I'm on fire. I've been running a soup kitchen. You guys should give me food you don't don't sell. They said they didn't have any. You know, that's back with Polaroid Cameras, Virginia, I'd go to the back of the store, take a picture with a Polaroid, run around to the front of the store and say, what's this? Right? <laughs> Looks like you're throwing it away. Well, the issue was not that they didn't want to give it to me. The issue was tracking their inventory because if they couldn't track it, they didn't know where their profit went. So we became a business solution. And I think any time we try to approach a social issue in the community, you have to go to the players whether it's government or private sector, if it's housing, you have to go to the developers, you have to go to the banks, you have to go to the finance people and say, how can we be a solution to you? That's a sustainable partnership. Otherwise, you're saying, you're losing, I should gain on that, Hmm. right? You can't sell the food, you should just give it to me. That's not a sustainable partnership. So that was a basic business principle I learned early on. And everything I've worked on, around now urban agriculture, around affordable housing, around uh, education, uh, around setting on some foundation boards. It is to be uh, a partner, a strategic partner, to be a solution to the bigger issue. That's why it's not a just say we're throwing away food and people deserve to eat. Well, not everybody agrees to that. So you have to ask a question everybody says yes to. You want better health outcomes. Do you want better educational outcomes? Yes. Do you want more stable, secure families? Yes. Yes. Is this going to cost me something? (laughs) (laughs) It's actually, it pays off many, many times to make those investments. But I think it's tough to make that kind of an argument to a developer, isn't it? I mean, we know that there have been set-asides for affordable housing in a great deal of new developments. It's part of the tax structure in many cases, like along the Beltline, yet it's not easy to deliver. So how do you incentivize that? Or how do you frame the conversation with those people to make more affordable housing available? Well, you've, you've kind of go all the way back to we created a coalition out of the uh, regional housing forum, and it was called City for All, right? You know, you know, you can look that up, City for All. We have a positions. When we say City for All, we're talking City for All people. And what are the elements of the city that we want to live in? For people that live in cities, they don't mind density. That's where they move to. They usually want to embrace diversity because it's a richer life. Right, people mm-hmm. of different traditions and different backgrounds, different food choices. Different food choices. I said a lot of people want want that. 
So, but we also want schools. We want safe streets. And then a lot of people will say, but we want parks. And increasingly we're finding people saying, I'd like to live near a garden or a farm. I would like a farmer's market in my neighborhood. Right? So if those are elements of the city we want to live in, it's incumbent on us to figure out how to do that and to do that in partnership. So a, a you know, great story last fall, about this time, is last October, and we had the mayoral forum. We're going to have seven new uh, council members. This is a big year. The housing forum actually set up and moderated one of the mayoral forums with all 10 candidates. Can I ask you for an aside, just to explain quickly what the housing forum is, because it's such an interesting model. Well, it uh, the housing forum is celebrating its 30th year. It has no mission. It has no budget. Uh, it has no director. <laughs> right? Can you imagine? Uh, and yet, we've been meeting every month for 20-some years. Now we meet quarterly. And I, I'm the convener and moderator. That, that's, you know, it's the only thing constant. We get over 200 people there, and we'll get the federal, state, uh, HUD, DCA. You get city planners. You get developers in the room. You get bankers in the room. You get nonprofit developers. You get the disruptors who want to go up and blow my meeting up. But we have created a place where we can have real conversations. What do you talk and about? And I would say, well, we talk about affordable housing. Uh-huh. But oftentimes we may be having a session on transportation choices. A lot of people moved out of the city, right, because they could so get they cheaper housing. So they could find housing. something they could afford. They did not figure out the cost of transportation. Mm-hmm. So in the, it, it actually ended up their mortgage was higher than living in the city if you add transportation to it. That, you know, nobody put those two things together. So we do look at transportation and schools and education. All these votes come up and they're related to housing. But to get back to what we do there, it's a safe place to have experts talk about studies. We have a regional homeless commission that's based down at United Way. And our housing forum is based at the Atlanta Regional Commission. And now ARC, the Atlanta Regional Commission, 22 counties, they have a program called Catalyst. And that really is around economic development for the whole region. And we have these buckets, and one of them is housing and health we put together. So that's what we might call a container or a bucket or a way to gather people around of different expertise to talk about how are we going to tackle this. Because you're not going to tackle it in Marietta and not tackle it in Lawrenceville or Sandy Springs or Roswell or downtown Atlanta. There's conversations going in all those places. Bill Bowling, he's founder of the Atlanta Food Bank, which has turned into the Georgia Food Bank Network and spawned so many other nonprofits that are helping people deal with the problems of living in poverty. And as we're hearing, not just the people living in poverty, but really all of us. We'll be back with more of our conversation with Bill right after a short break. Stay with us. This is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott with On Second Thought from GPB, and we're revisiting my, I think, seasonably appropriate conversation with Bill Bowling. He's been working more than four decades on issues related to poverty and inequality. Along with hunger, Bill is also involved with projects focusing on affordable housing and health education. Now, about 60% or 1 million students qualify for free and reduced lunch in Georgia, which signals significant food insecurity for students. I asked Bill what happens when kids don't get enough to eat and what happens during the holidays when school is out. Well, a big one. You know, summer programs 
only about 15%, 15, 8%, 18% of the kids across the state access any food. During school year, they get breakfast and lunch at school. In the summer, only 15% of their kids are accessed. Mm. So that's a big, big program of the Georgia Food Bank Association, working with USDA and F, uh, FDA. So, you know, we, we've got to be sure that kids eat on weekends and in the summer. You know, as we look, and again, the Atlanta Food Bank serves all of North Georgia, but we could take these numbers in any region. In the 29-county service area, there are over 800,000, 14% of the people who are food insecure. One in seven in North Georgia are food insecure. 19% of our children are food insecure, meaning they don't know from day to day and week to week that they're going to have meals. Isn't that amazing? In America, where we're throwing away 30% of the food, 1.6 million people, 15%, are food insecure in Georgia. So th- the numbers are just heartbreaking when we know there's plenty of food. Mm. So how does it get to them? And what happens to their brains when they don't get enough food? How does that change their development and the outcomes really for the rest of their lives? And again, this is an area where we can go to the CDC, we can go to the health department, we can show that if you don't have good nutrition, you're not going to learn as well. Mm. Or if you're eating a lot of sugar, which is what comes to a lot of kids. Sugar and fat, there's access to a lot of cheap food in many places if where there isn't. If you have a limited income, you can, you can go down and get really full for six, seven bucks mm-hmm. at, at a fast food place. Nothing wrong with that occasionally. Not good if you eat it every day. So what are you, uh, the, one of the organizations that you're working with since your retirement is the Food Well Alliance. And this is, I've been reading about it, er, involved in urban agriculture and building up community gardens. So how, what, what are some of the challenges of creating urban gardens, especially in areas, like we said, a lot of pressure on land to develop it. It's worth a lot more money. How do you turn those into gardens? Well, that's a, that's a big challenge in, in, you know, in the inner city, the cost of land. Let me just back up a little bit. At the food bank, when we first began, we took anything people would give us, whatever was sold in the grocery store. But over time, we realized that it's okay to have a snack. It's okay to have a cookie every once in a while. It can be a reward for doing your homework. That can't be your staple. We quit distributing. We don't, we don't do soft drinks, sugar drinks, cookies, chips. We don't take it. Last year, the Atlanta Food Bank did over 15 million pounds of fresh produce. And we do that statewide through the Georgia Food Bank Association, where we're working directly with farmers in middle and south Georgia. We're one of the seven big farm states in the country. And then you've got Florida and North Carolina. We even have a mixing center in Atlanta for the whole southeast to bring in tractor-trailer loads of food. Mm -hmm. So we pay the farmer the pick-and-pack costs. That's win-win, right? They can't sell it. We'll pay to get it out of the field and get it to us, and then we can distribute it out. So one of the things we did through the years was build community gardens at the food bank. Not necessarily in our mission. We just could. We built over 200 of them. And as I was leaving the food bank, we started working with the Cox Foundation, who was very generous in this area. And Jim Kennedy had the vision of, if can we use gardens and farms and markets as community building tools? Now, his point was, if we walk or ride our bicycle, people are nicer to each other than they are in cars. Mm-hmm. We all know that, right? 
He said, well, maybe gardens could be the same way. And in fact, that's exactly what happens in a neighborhood. We can change a neighborhood with a strong community garden. So we created an organization called Food Well Alliance. We're in our fourth year, and we've distributed over $3 million in small grants. To, we have over 50 urban farms in the five-county area. We have over 350 community gardens. We have over 200 schools with teaching gardens in them now. So again, that idea of going up the river where they're throwing the kids in, we're going up the river and saying, let's teach our children about soil, about compost, about water use. Let's teach our children where food comes from. The children will change our eating habits. We've seen it over and over again. What have been some of the successes? What have you seen happen? Well, we have a soil festival. Now, who would think, <laughs> who would think 700 people would come to a soil festival in downtown Atlanta at a garden on the west side called Truly Living Well? The incentive is we're going to give you some compost if you come over, but we're also going to feed you. We're going to teach you about soil and composting. You know, it's about the last thing I would think of 700 people would want to come. They, they would come for a wine and cheese party, but not soil and, and compost. Well, in fact, the children are leading the way. Mm. And it's, it's just one of those neat things that captures their imagination. We, in turn, are working with USDA. We're working with EPA. We have a compost working table to work on a citywide composting program. You know that food is the biggest producer of methane in our dumps. Right. Right. Well, I thought it was cows, but I guess food. Food that goes into landfills, mm-hmm. right? Well, cows have their have their role. <laughs> uh, they all kind of get bunched up. They're not in our neighborhoods, but you you can look at landfills. So we're thinking we could make gold out of this. We could make compost and soil that we can give back to community gardeners and urban farms. So there are a number of things that we're doing at Foodwell as a convener, as a facilitator, as an educator, as a grant maker. And we're really building community where people come to us and say, we would love to have a community garden. We're looking at congregations now who own land and congregations may be shrinking. They think, what do we do with our assets? Well, we could have a farm there. We could have a community garden. You know, we have community uh, farmers markets all over the city now. What we're trying to do is to teach people about how we grow food, how we cook food, how we consume food how it affects our health, our well-being, our better educational outcome. And we've really always got to start back with education. You know, in the meantime, people have to eat every day. That's why we have a food bank. Well, this time of year especially, we're living in foodie culture, of course, and we, we hear are. a lot of stories about food is history, food is community, food is family, and if this is a time of year when people really tend to overdo it with food, certainly. That's okay occasionally. I absolutely agree. I love the abundance. It's one of my favorite holidays, quite honestly, because it's about food and community more than material goods. Right. But what does that mean for somebody who doesn't have enough food? You know, we talked a little bit about the physical effects, but how about the sort of psychological effects of not having enough? What does that lack, that fear, I think, do to people? Well, psychologically, both for families and for children to think that they don't have enough to eat, it's it's devastating. It's embarrassing for children. Uh, or they can't bring their lunch, or they may not have money for lunch. You know, why would you even put that stigma on children? 
if we know just feeding people is good for our health and better education, why wouldn't we just feed them instead of setting up all these all these levels? You know, Thanksgiving's great because it gives us time to share food in abundance, and people volunteer more at Thanksgiving and the holidays. People donate more. But as we like to say, you live in the meantime, so you got to eat next week too, mm-hmm. and you got to week the week after Thanksgiving. That's why it's important to have year-round programs. But there's nothing wrong with celebrating food and great food. There's nothing wrong with bringing people around the table. I I, I just went up in Alpharetta. We had an early Thanksgiving meal up there with the Turkish community, and it was just so much fun because they brought their own food to the table. That's a wonderful thing about being in a place that has diversity because you bring your food with you. And the table is a place that levels everything out. And you bring your recipes. And there's a story behind the recipe about one of your grandmothers or or somebody in the family. So that's the beauty of food. And it's always been the beauty. We're hearing about the origins and the growth of the food bank and the food bank system all across Georgia, not just Georgia Food Bank Network. The Georgia Food Bank Network, and Bill Bowling is the founder of that. I interrupted you when you were talking about the mayoral forum that's coming up. So we used used the housing forum, and we had a mayoral forum with all 10 candidates. They all spoke. And now our mayor, who was city council person, Keisha Lance Bottoms, she came out of that and came back within a month and said, this is top priority for me. And I commit a billion dollars, half public, half private. Now, she's not a housing expert. She doesn't know how she would do that. She just says it's a priority for the city. Over the last eight years, the city, through the housing authority, Invested Atlanta, did not produce one single unit of affordable housing in eight years. Everything that you're saying, I'm buying completely into your vision of, you know, community gardens all over and people learning about food and service, uh, people having affordable housing, maybe a landscape of tiny houses in some places so people can have something to call their own. You think I'm a little idealistic, well, Virginia? I do. <laughs> I do. But, you know, all of it makes perfect sense. If you run the numbers, if our society suffers in this way, we pay it back in other ways. And I completely get that and believe in it. But how do you convince policymakers of that? How do you how do you pass on this idealistic vision, which to me, if I'm driving around downtown Atlanta, I don't see it. I see a bunch of new developments. I see a bunch of houses with starting at $700,000 townhouses and wonder who lives here. Well, I wonder that. <laughs> how could there be that many good jobs? But uh, there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not against that. I'm not against yeah. it either, but yeah. it's, not a, it's not a life that I live and not a life that many people that I know live. It's true. And, I, you know, maybe you know, here toward the end of the interview, we would come back to the beginning, the table, and sharing with each other and kind of letting down our judgments about each other that we might have a different faith tradition or we might – live a different lifestyle, or we might have a different orientation, or one of us is a Republican and one's a Democrat. You know, when we get around the table, around good food, all that can fall away. And you can just start telling stories. You know, out of ARC, we have these civic tables where, you know, a dozen people will get together for the evening. You could actually call up ARC and plan one of those for your own neighborhood, uh, a civic table to talk about those issues. 
there is a methodology to facilitating that conversation. You know, housing forums don't last for 30 years without some intention. Uh, and I know there's a lot of doubters out there, and much of politics is focused on fear. That's kind of how politics is running. I think we're exhausted. I think it's exhausting to be fearful all the time. I think it's it's so much better to be at the table and share a meal and listen to another person's story. And when you do that, those differences fall away. It's amazing. It's like magic. So you're talking about sitting down at, with intention with a lot of people. And as we know, what often comes up at Thanksgiving tables with family is the kind of things you want to avoid. And when they don't get avoided, there are arguments. What would you say as a person who sat with many different varieties of community about about having that civic conversation? <laughs> well, be careful what you talk about. <laughs> you know, I think without... Um, Oftentimes, it's who's right and who's wrong, and it gets framed that way, or who the good and the bad are, who we're fearful of, and who we feel like are friends. I think when you use that frame, it's a win-lose and often very uncomfortable. You know, start with the mill and then start talking about the farmer. And if you talk about the farmer, talk about the land. If you talk about the land, let's talk about water and the soil. Uh, You know, there's any number of doors to walk through. Very important. I learned very early on not to judge why people were walking through the door. I just want you to walk through the door. I just want you to get in the room. And then we can start the conversation. We'll find something in common. You know, for business people who come to the food bank, I'm getting out, and and I'm not doing it anymore, but for the years I was there, I'm getting out 7 to $9 worth of food for every dollar you would invest in my bank. So when I'm talking to business folks, I'm talking as a banker. I'm talking as a business person. What's your return on investment? But if you're talking in the faith community, you're talking about food as a transformational tool. If you're talking in the public sector, you're talking about leverage. How can we take our public dollars and our private dollars and get more done? If you're talking in academia and school system, you're talking about the creativity. Young people are so entrepreneurial, so much more connected. What we have to teach them is about how you sustain that idea, and it really is through relationships. It's finding a way to dialogue with each other without judging. Bill, you have lived a lifetime of service since you figured out that making soup. (laughs) Well, let let me say this, and it's so important to say, is I did all this in the context of community, starting in the community that my wife and I started, the community food bank, the community of food well, the community around housing. So that's another thing that we often do is we hold people up as if they're some kind of super something. No, it's just a matter of inviting people to the table, creating the methodology, you know, getting away from our judgments and finding ways, roles that we can all play. Everybody can do something. We're all called to do something with what we have and the time that we have. That was my conversation with Bill Bowling, founder of the Atlanta Food Bank, and so much more. Well, over the holiday, maybe you have some long hours of driving ahead of you or getting the feast ready or enjoying some downtime while making turkey soup. 
That's a good time to catch up with conversations you might have missed on On Second Thought. We've had a lot of great responses to our conversation with former UN Ambassador Samantha Power about her life and the role of morality in policymaking. Mo Rocca joined us to talk about his mobituaries. That's for people and things that have passed who deserve more attention. And with reporter Carrie Teagarden on the AJC's in-depth investigation into abuse and neglect at senior care facilities in Georgia. You can listen to all or any of them. Go to our programs tab at at gpbnews.org or subscribe to the On Second Thought podcast for free and they will always be available. I feel so lucky to work with a talented and dedicated team here to bring you conversations from and about Georgia. We know your time is a precious thing and we are grateful that you choose to spend some of it with us. I'm Virginia Prescott. On behalf of all of us, have a wonderful holiday week from On Second Thought and GPB. GPB.